You're listening to the Principal Meet Practice podcast from Singularity University. I'm Kyle Nell, and this season we're partnering with our friends at INSEAD to bring you deep conversations into the realities of managing through uncertainty. Each episode will feature an expert whose focus is on the theory behind a topic and a practitioner who is out on the front lines actively bringing these concepts to life. We'll cover topics from the future of retail to the education crisis and more. Let's dive in. Today, we're going to talk about how access to water and food impacts global education with Carbon Burbano, Director of School Feeding for the World Food Program, and Georgie Liberty, CEO and founder of the Georgie Bidel Foundation. Access to food and clean water enables millions of children globally to be able to attend school. Today, we'll talk about what this means for humanity now and in the future and how listeners can take action and get involved. So let's just jump right into it. Welcome, Carmen. Hi, how are you, Kyle? Great. Thanks so much for being here. You know, as the director of school feeding for the United Nations World Food Program, Carmen, you are leading WFP's renewed commitment to school children worldwide with a new strategy that was recently launched. The World Food Program will work with governments to ensure that no child goes to school hungry. That's a pretty big thing there. In a recent article that you wrote for the World Food Program Insight, you mentioned the importance of investing in learning and in the learner. Can you tell us more about that link between school meals and access to education? Well, Kyle, the basic idea is that if we have children that are going to school hungry, or if they're going to school and they're sick, they're anemic, or they have parasites, they can't see the blackboard because they haven't realized that they need glasses, etc., then we're simply not going to have children that are able and and uh, well enough to to learn. So what we've basically been saying is we need investments in education, we need investments in learning, in textbooks, in teachers, in classrooms, etc. But we also need to invest in the learner and the kids themselves. We need to make sure that they're coming to school well-nourished and that their bodies are, are taken care of. This is super important because as we make sure that, that children's well-being is taken care of, we're also making sure that they can take advantage of those learning opportunities, that they can fulfill their full potential, that they could take you know, everything that they're exposed to and then, you know, grow up and become productive and happy uh, family members and citizens. So that's the basic idea behind the importance of investing in these programs. That's important for families everywhere. Parents know this very well. You know, you, you have to ensure that your child is well nourished so that when they go to school, they're okay. It's especially important in the poorest countries, in the poorest families, because that's where we see a lot of kids coming to school on an empty stomach, Mm. see a lot of kids walking to school for hours to get there, and programs that incorporate health and nutrition that make sure that children, when they get to school, they have a meal, they have breakfast, or they have lunch, programs that are making sure that they're dewormed so that we're not looking at children with parasites or with anemia. All of those programs are particularly important for these children that come from poor backgrounds because we're also ensuring that we're compensating for those inequalities. We're giving those kids or helping them start on a level playing field, let's say. 
So that's our point also as the UN. It's really important to make sure that the most vulnerable children, girls, children coming from poor families, children living in conflict settings, living in very poor countries, get access to these programs so that they can learn and thrive. It's so true, right? I really loved it. It's so succinct, right? It's investing in the learning, but also the learner. It's so easy to forget about the learner through all that. So, so glad to hear that. And I have so many follow-up questions. But before I do, I want to bring Georgie in. Georgie is a dear friend, and she's the CEO and founder of the Georgie Bidiel Foundation, which is a charitable organization that aims to provide clean water, sanitation, and reforestation projects to the people of Burkina Faso. Her foundation builds and restores wells, provides technical training in well operation and maintenance, and creates educational programs for sanitary and hygiene practice, and invests in agriculture, agricultural reforestation initiatives. No big deal. Quite a number of things, Georgie. So Georgie, as we, as we heard from Carmen, there's a strong link between meals and education, and the same can be said for the work your foundation is doing to enable millions of women and children to get an education and contribute to their communities through access to clean water. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Could you expand that for us? Like how water and getting clean water and access to clean water is all tied into education and everything that Carmen just spoke about? Yes, absolutely. So funny. When Carmen was talking, I was like, that was the story of my life when I was younger. Mm. (laughs) So I'll tell you a little bit about my story and where I come from and what inspired me actually to start the Georgie Badiel Foundation. I'm originally from Burkina Faso, and as a young girl, I used to walk three hours to fetch water with my grandmother and my cousin's girls. As a young girl, I always knew that it wasn't something that was right to do, because water is so simple, water is so basic that us not having access to clean water uh, near home, I felt that that was so unfair. So I was uh, always complaining to my grandmother. I would ask, I was like, why you have to wake me up so early? Why the water is so far? Why the water is not closed? Like just so many questions. And as I grow, I became Miss Burkina Faso in 2003 and Miss Africa in 2004. And that led me to start an international modeling career in Paris. And after working with all these major designers and a magazine, I was kind of like something is really missing in me because I have to say I'm maybe one out of maybe 5,000 people. My village has 5,000 people. One out of 5,000 people that really made it that far. But uh, with all the success, what do I'm doing? Did I'm using my platform to help to give back? Oh, I wasn't so sure and I do I did enjoy my you know jet set life, traveling the world, living the best of my life. And I went to visit my sister who was almost nine months pregnant. She had to wake up between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. to get water. That is when I was like, oh my God, that is the difference I have to come and make because it's impossible to educate a child without clean water. Is impossible to empower a woman without clean water. Is impossible to fight anger without clean water and health and uh, so many other things. So uh, Carmen, I'm with you. I was one of these kids. <laughs> so today I'm very grateful to be able to uh, make a difference and also uh, say that nothing is impossible. You know, nothing is impossible if I could make it through coming from nothing, fetching water, 
to the best and giving back. So I'm sure these kids that you are helping will make it even further than I. That's so amazing. Georgie, that's incredible. These problems seem so far away, I think, for most people that are probably listening to this podcast right now, right? And it's so hard to really wrap your head around somebody having to get up at two or four in the morning to go fetch water and bring it back, right? And everything you just laid out, Georgie and Carmen too, I mean, just these really endemic issues. And we're still lacking basic access to education, food, and clean water. I mean, there's these are fundamental things that existed, but were exacerbated. Can you share more about why these issues are still so common and prevalent today? And what can we do? I think for any, every time that I hear a story like this or I see this gaping wide chasm of the haves and the have-nots, of some basic things, what can we do from a national or global level to aid in improving these situations? Why is it still happening and what do we do? Feel free to jump in, uh, Carmen or Georgie. Let me just say how inspiring Georgie's story is and perhaps say that as she was speaking, I was thinking how these investments that are so vital, you know, there is nothing more vital than water and food, how they have the potential to change the course of somebody's life. You know, if you ensure that children when they're young, they have enough to eat, they can have clean water and they can have an education, then you're setting them up on a trajectory for their entire life that is going to be completely different than if you take away those very specific, but also very, in a way, seemingly simple things. They're kind of basics things. The sad part, as you're saying, is that we do live in a world where these unbelievable inequalities happen where we have, by our accounts, before the COVID pandemic, we had about 73 million children, mostly in African countries, that were living in extreme poverty and that didn't have access to these programs, like school meals, like other nutrition programs, and even water. So, you know, we are looking at a world in which people throw away food in in countries like the US or in Europe, And the same world, in the same day, in a different part of the world, a child is waking up and not having anything to eat and then walking to school on an empty stomach. So, you know, I think the first thing to remember is that these inequalities can only be, I would say, tackled by government investments like these crucial programs. And one of the things that I've thought about a lot lately is this belief that if we put in place social programs that are really safety nets for families, like school meals, like safe water, like basic nutrition programs for families that are poor, then we are in a way addressing some of the very basic inequalities. We may not be addressing all of them, but at least we're working on the next generation. We're supporting or helping children get to where Georgie is, you know, if we invest in early in their lives and in their education. So I would say making sure governments are continuing these investments in these social programs and these safety nets that are vital for families is the first step. And making sure that there's public recognition and public pressure 
for mm. governments to keep them running is probably a second point. I don't know if I should, uh, when it comes to government, especially I would say uh, government from poor country like my or uh, many others, I don't know if a big institution like the UN should keep on focusing on working with government because they have proven that they cannot do much for their people. And this is reality. They have proven that poverty cannot be solved in their countries. You know, when I was a kid, before election, these people will come in, they will say, oh, vote for us. If you vote for us, we'll bring you clean water. They will bring a few bags of rice and everybody's seeing everybody's happy. Can you imagine how long it took? Nobody ever came in and built a well in my village until I grew up, I fight for myself, I left the country and I come back to build that wealth. And is the example for many other countries, you know, in Africa. So I don't know about believing the government anymore. My faith, I would say, will go on grassroots organizations. You know, these are very important because they're found by, I would say, the youth, people like me who really believe in a real change in the people's lives. And most of the people that found grassroots organizations work in their village. So they really focus on helping their community to stand up. So I don't know if the UN should continue to kind of like, I mean, work with the government. I just feel like that fight is in vain because millions were invest in Burkina Faso. And when you look at a place like my country, Burkina Faso have over 9,000 broken wells. 9,000 broken wells. When I heard that number, I couldn't believe it. You know, these wells were built by big organization, by the government, but no one thought of giving the simple training to women to learn how to restore these wells or maintain them. So I don't know about working with the government anymore. If you guys have the funds, if you really want to make a, a difference, I think you have to maybe think of changing your focus. Well, you know, you're right in the sense that I don't think that governments by themselves have the right incentives in many cases to invest in, in really what's needed, especially in countries like African countries where, you know, your experience is. It is true that when governments need to invest, they normally look at the political gains of investing in the cities, for example, but maybe not in the rural areas where people are very, very vulnerable and lacking a lot of the basic services. So I would say it has to come from both angles. I think the solutions need to come from grassroots. It's the communities themselves that need to determine what they need. It's especially women and their leadership in determining what is okay for their communities, what they really need, and what kind of solutions would really help to solve some of the problems that are being felt locally that need to be identified and engaged and empowered. But the other side of the coin is that the only way to get to scale, the only way to get to sustainability is by building a public system that is accountable to those citizens that are needing those services. I come from Ecuador. I come from a country in Latin America that 20, 30 years ago was a low-income country. 
where still a large proportion of the population live in poverty and where we've struggled for many, many years in this back and forth of what can the government do for us. Mm -hmm. And again, getting trapped into decades of corruption, of administrations that come and go, coups of where the population kind of gets tired of the administration of choice. And then, you know, there's a coup and then we elect somebody else because the frustration of things not improving is so large. And I would say it probably only improved and Ecuador now is a is a middle income country. So I would say we've come a long way since the time I was born, for example. But it has come out of a combination of organized grassroots movements coupled with political stability so that there could be investments, sustained investments over a period of time so that people could start to see the returns of government investment. So my argument would be, I think we need both because without public investment, you simply cannot sustain and you cannot get at the scale that's needed to really kind of move the country along in a magnitude that could lift millions out of poverty, not just pockets that are well-organized. No, that makes perfect sense. I just, just, this is an amazing conversation. The next thing, I mean, which is definitely tied into all this is all of these things are macro issues that affect everybody, but you have both talked about and spoken often about how girls and women's education and experiences are disproportionately affected because of poor access to food or clean water. Can you talk about why this it disproportionately affects women and girls and how it can be prevented? Unfortunately, when you look at history, women and girls have been, I would say, underestimated for a very long time. You know, when you look at a place like around the world, I would say everywhere, you know, it's definitely, I would say, uh, now better in America and Europe. But still, women are still fighting for uh, the right, you know, on a lot of different issues. Uh, so imagine if uh, women, I would say, in America and in Europe are still fighting for their right on some point. Imagine what will happen to women and young girls in these poor places, you know. In Burkina Faso, for example, when I was young, I grew up between uh, five brothers. And in my village, the culture is such as is only the girls that have to work to fetch the water. And that was to me an everyday fight because I will tell my grandmother, this is not fair, this is not right. And until today, this is continuing on so many villages. So what the Georgie Badil Foundation understood is actually a mentality. So here there is two fights. It's either I come, I fight back to change the mind of the people or I empower the woman so that everything becomes naturally equal without me fighting anyone. So what the Georgie Badiel Foundation start to do, we start to teach women basic engineering because building wealth is engineering. So we break down our courses simply in their own dialects. So we start teaching women. And as we advance, the men's, uh, come to us and ask us, so you are empowering this woman, teaching them basic engineering, which is so valuable. Why don't you teach us that? And we kind of like, well, 
you guys say that fetching water is the woman duty. So soon as you think it's the woman duty, why should we teach you? They're like, oh, we want to be a part of it now. So you see how we kind of like naturally, and I would say organically change the mind of the people without even fighting with them. So now what we do, we train the woman and then we let them train the men. These men that were kind of like putting them down, telling them that, oh, fetching water is your duty, you're worth nothing, you can't do nothing other than that. We're like, all right, these women are going to empower you now so that you will give them the respect they deserve. So I would say the Georgie Badet Foundation kind of like, this is what I like to do. Understand the people, understand the culture, and change the mentality accordingly. But through me, it is through empowering women, empowering young girls. That is the best way, I would say, of, of bringing equality in our society. Just go ahead and empower them. I don't know what you think about it, Carmen. <laughs> Paying attention to the voices of women and empowering them is, is crucial. I would add one thing, which is also understanding that women have specific needs that, that need to be taken into consideration. Girls and women have particular needs that normally society overlooks and does not pay attention to. And then if that happens, they become barriers. So for example, a little earlier in, in our lives, when we're children, girls are physiologically more prone to anemia, for example. They are more prone to specific physiological issues because they menstruate, because of their periods. They need more nutrients when they're adolescents, for example. They need specific care in terms of water and sanitation, as Georgie was saying. But if you're in school and you're a girl, you're a teenager, then you need bathrooms where you can take care of yourself every month, for example. You need access to hygienic pads. Otherwise, if we are not treating those specific needs that girls and women have, what happens is that we have girls missing school three, four days a month. And mm -hmm. as they start missing school over and over and over again, they start falling behind. And right. as the years go by, you can start seeing that they're following the lessons less and less, and then they just start disengaging from education just because of the burden of those days that go by and that they're not able to go to school. So mm -hmm. one of the things that the World Food Program does with other partners is really analyze what are the specific needs of girls, what are the specific barriers, why are those girls not in school? There are cultural factors as well, as Georgie said, in many countries, in many families, if the family is faced with a decision of to send boys or girls to school, the family will always, in many cultures, privilege the boys and mm -hmm. keep the girl at home if they have to choose, if there's not enough money, if there's food to fetch or water to fetch, if there are siblings to take care of. That's a girl's job, as Georgie was saying. So we know that there are cultural barriers, that there are also concerns that parents may have of sending girls to school by themselves if they have to walk long hours. And in many countries, if there's no women teachers, if there's just male teachers, then families won't send their girls, especially 
from certain religions, etc. So there are a number of cultural issues that then become barriers for girls to stay in school and complete their education. So I would say one of the key things is understanding those barriers and then figuring out how can we work with communities to address them. Are we talking about, for example, something as simple as having sex desegregated bathrooms so mm -hmm. that girls can go into a bathroom and have privacy and do what they need to do? That's a really big thing for parents. If there are no sex desegregated bathrooms, a father will probably not send his girl to school. In many countries, for example, some of the partners have systems where the teachers accompany the girls on the way to school. And then that helps parents no longer be worried about them having to face dangers on the way to school and on the way back. In some countries, we give specific cash transfers or vouchers for girls so that the families have an added incentive because remember, we have to remember also that when they send the girl to school, the family is also foregoing perhaps some income or right. some additional housework. So we also need to offset those costs. And poor families, those are big decisions. Mm -hmm. So if we compensate the family and say, okay, if you commit to sending your girl to school, we will help you economically, then that's an equation that all of a sudden works out. You know, there's a combination, as Georgia was saying, of empowering women across their lives to make decisions, to participate and change that mentality, but also from the point of view of the programs and the point of view of how these things are designed, how do we take into consideration their specific needs and their specific viewpoints so that those barriers are lifted and they become opportunities? You definitely sometimes have to have an exchange, you know, as Carmen said, for parents to let the young girls go to school. I remember at the beginning when we started the Georgie Badel Foundation, we were kind of like, what will be, we needed to put conditions together before we build a well in the village. One of these conditions was that we want every girl from that village to go to school. And every family has to agree to that. If they don't agree to that, they don't sign that they agree to that. We will not build a well in the village. That is so cool. I come from the business world too. So it's like you wouldn't try to set an expectation or a goal without enlightening the incentives of the people making decisions. Like that would just seem like madness. But we do that all the time in societies, right? Where we dump all this money into building this beautiful school, this shrine to education. We don't take care of the basic necessities of the learners. That's why I love Carmen when you said helping the learner and the learning. Mm -hmm. And so the learner can be prepared to receive actual education. And the and, and same thing goes for water and all that's so tied together. I love that. They all goes together. You know, with, without water, just forget about it. You, you cannot educate a, a young girl. I would say I was an exception in the sense that my father, to him, our education was like, the number one, it will not treat that for anything. So uh, we're sent to school no matter what, you know. Unfortunately, I have cousins that uh, never have an education because they have to help their mothers go fetch the water. So Carmen, I'm just super curious, you know, starting in March is when schools really started to shut down globally, uh, maybe even a little bit before. So did you see a shift in how people were viewing something that just was kind of happening almost invisibly in the background, like the school feeding program and the education system at large, do people really start to see, oh, 
actually how important feeding kids at schools really are? So that's interesting because that's exactly what happened. In a way, these programs, when we talk about school feeding, one of the things we need to remember is that these are the largest assistance programs that children have in the world. I mean, it is a program that is present in pretty much every country in the world, from the U.S. to Somalia and everything in between. So, you know, this is a massive investment that governments make on making sure the children are fed in school. And in a way, we take it for granted. It's something that's there. School lunch programs are everywhere. Many of us have stories about going to school and eating the lunches there. And certainly a lot of people that I work with, myself included, we have tons of stories about how having food in school was so important for our education and memories around that. So it's part of our fabric. It's part of our childhood. It's part of how we grew up. And we kind of forget that they're there. And so what happened in March is that all of a sudden, 90% of the children of the world were sent home. So this was about 1.6 billion children were at home all of a sudden. This also meant that by not going to school, they also didn't have access to these programs, to these services that were so vital for millions of children. So we started very quickly in March when schools started to shut down to keep tabs, to keep a running tracking of how many children were getting affected. At the peak of the crisis, we calculated that around 370 million children were missing out on school meals worldwide this became a clear big emergency, not just for the World Food Program, but for everybody. And I don't know if you remember, but there were lots of articles in the New York Times and the yeah. about even you know New York and the public school system in New York. And what do we do? Do we shut it down? But what about the meals? And all of a sudden, this conversation started to happen everywhere. And I would say one of the things that has been very positive about this is that everybody has been touched by the issue of schools shutting down. Everybody in the US, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, every family has had to deal with kids not being in school, kids not being fed in school, and we've all kind of realized how important these programs are. So very early on, as rumbling started about online learning, and how do we switch to online solutions so that kids could get educated? I thought, okay, well, I mean, we can shift to online learning, but we can't shift to online eating. That, you know, that's right. not a solution. So we need alternatives. We need to figure out very quickly how to get these kids the food that they were getting at school. We need to do it now at home. So that's what we started working on with many governments around the world. About 70 governments joined a big effort from the World Food Program to reinvent these programs. And many of them started sending food home to children's houses or having parents pick it up and taking it to their houses. Others in a much less measure, but some countries started to give families vouchers, like in the UK, mm. some countries in Latin America. In other countries, they would give families cash to compensate for the food so that they could go out in the market and buy the food. So there was a big scramble, I would say, to figure out how do we pivot? How do we make sure that these children that were crucially hungry are getting the food that they need? 
And of course, being the UN, we focused mainly on the poorest countries. Our operations are in 70 of the poorest countries in the world. So we've focused a lot of our support there. And mm -hmm. we've managed to reach about 7 million kids with alternative mechanisms to meals. So this has been, you know, a huge effort from all of the people that work in different countries through World Food Program operations to make sure that these kids were getting the food that they need. And it's been a really interesting experience because we've had everybody in the community pitching in. And so, for example, in Honduras, teachers were so worried about their students going hungry that they got on their bikes and they started distributing food to their houses, to their students' wow. houses. And they, you know, they, they would tell us and say, well, I want to know how they're doing. I haven't seen them in a month. I want to know if they're okay. I want to make sure that they get the food. I want to make sure that I talk to them and tell them about COVID and how mm. can they protect themselves and their families, check out their parents. So teachers started to mobilize. They've been real heroes in all of this as well to really support children that were suddenly at home. So it's been an incredible effort. And of course, now, you know, we can talk a little bit after about, you know, what comes now, but during the pandemic and during the lockdowns, it has been a big effort from governments to keep these kids supported. Yeah, even for us, I mean, we live in South Austin in a really nice area. And when all this happened, it was amazing, at least for me, to really see how much the community had to mobilize to feed these kids that were being supported by the school system and I think for most of us, it really showed the fragility of the system, right? When you remove this critical resource and all of these other things are affected that no one really had taken the time to think through. And I think that's everything that you're talking about is talking about, you know, hearing Georgie's story and seeing also too, if you add a critical capability or critical resource, all of the other unforeseen benefits that happen as a result of making good changes too. And specifically, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but just got to ask one more question, Georgie. You know, your book, The Water Princess, which my daughter, you know, full plug, my daughter loves that book so much. She's nine and she loves it. She reads it to our son. It's super cute. No question about it, but I'm biased, of course. That book is so great. One thing, I'm obsessed with storytelling and how important making these stories accessible are. So like Carmen, the story you told about the teachers in Honduras and how they were, you can take all of these big, gnarly, almost unthinkable thoughts because they're so big and there's, the problems are so massive. When you shrink it down to a story, it mm -hmm. becomes very accessible and it makes you feel like we can do something about this. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the story, the children's book, The Water Princess? And we'll put links to this at the bottom so other people can buy it and read it. It's an incredible book and, and other links to everything Carmen was referencing and, and other things and how we can help in a second. But can you talk a little bit of The Water Princess and Yes. and how that came to be and how that's influenced and helped in sub-Saharan Africa? Yes, no, absolutely. So the Water Princess is based on my childhood story. Me walking with my grandmother to fetch water. You know, uh, in 2010, I co-founded an organization called Models for Water with a friend. And we both were in the peak of our modeling career where we were super busy, like I would be in London, she's in Australia, we need to coordinate. It was quite a lot for us, I would say. We were too busy to actually run an organization. 
So at some point, my friend told me that we are going to stop the organization. And the funds that we raised were donated to other organizations that were working in Burkina Faso to build wealth and restore wealth out there. But this organization wasn't working in my village. They were working in other villages. And to me, it was kind of like, as long as the money goes to Burkina Faso, then I'm fine. You know, at some point, hopefully this organization will get to my village and they will build the first well in my village. She decided to completely stop the organization. And I was hurt because I was kind of like, oh my God, my grandmother still need that water. She need that well. Like, how can we stop? So what do I do now? And that is when I came up with the idea of sharing my childhood story with the world, which came up with the Water Princess. I work with Susan Verde and Peter Reno, both are amazing authors, and we bring up the Water Princess. So that's that's the story. <laughs> that is so cool. Because again, it makes it accessible. And that's what I love about it. It's just doing something and really, really trying to take what we can to make things better. It's great. Which leads me to... The last question for both of you, you know, these issues, I don't think anyone listening to this podcast is going to feel callous hearted and say, oh, it's not my problem. I think people really do want to help. I think where we're stuck is how do we take action and how do we get involved like individually and collectively? What do we do? So if we're listening to this and our hearts are pricked and we're saying we want to do something, what do we do? How do we help? Carmen, how can listeners take action and get involved? Well, the first thing that I would say is that we are in the middle of the largest education crisis in history. This fact that millions of children are out of school, millions don't have access to online learning, and so they haven't really been learning for months now, is going to set us back for a generation if we don't do something. So I would say the first thing is, If you're a parent, if you're a young person, if you're a member of the community, as we all are, we need people to get involved in the local decisions of opening the schools and when to open the schools and how to make that safe for children to return. So that's, you know, that's the first thing that needs to happen. Schools need to reopen as soon as safely possible. Teachers need to be supported to return to these schools in a safe way so that children can go back to learning as fast as we possibly can. And when that happens, communities and people that are listening to this podcast should make sure that their elected officials are prioritizing services to children that have gone Mm -hmm. months without food, months Mm -hmm. without water, months without nutrition, so that they start demanding their local governments and their elected officials to revamp these programs. And then, of course, I would say supporting grassroots organizations like Georgie's, for example, that are on the ground, that are are supporting the communities at this moment, have done so during the pandemic, as has the UN. Every single cent, of course, matters. If there's an interest in supporting, for example, meals for children in schools, there's always a way to channel donations into those programs. But what's really most important is for people to get involved locally, to get involved with their education systems and make sure that children are back to school as soon as possible. That's great. That's really great. Georgie, what would you say? How can people get involved? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I would say that, 
You know, when COVID started, it was a big confusion, I would say, for us because it was kind of like quarantine is a privilege. Uh, It's not mm -hmm. everyone that can quarantine. If you make a dollar a day, how can you quarantine? You cannot afford it. So GBF did an amazing response with the community we work with during the time of quarantine. And I would say anyone that wants to help, please go on our website. You can donate anything help. And if you want to volunteer, just send us a message and we'd love to hear from you. So that is, yeah. that is what I would say. So <laughs> I, I, I love it. I just want to say thank you so much. I've been scribbling so many notes and takeaways, so it's hard. Usually I try to wrap up and summarize a couple of key things. So <laughs> this is uh, unfair, but uh, I would just say the things that have really stuck out to me are, mm -hmm. Carmen, you said at the beginning, we need to invest in learning and in the learner. I, I just can't, I can't get over that enough. I think that's really, really makes a lot of sense in focusing on the learner. Mm -hmm. And then too, at the, sort of at the end, you were saying too, we should work with governments and grassroots organizations locally to prioritize services to children in education. And that feels very, something like I can do, right? And I can really help with that. And I think everyone listening can do that too. And then Georgie, you said, again, work locally to empower and train local people, specifically local women to be able to do things, to be able to make things better. And then changing the minds of the people without fighting with them. I thought that was a really cool thing. You can take the existing framework and instead of throwing in someone's face, you can work with it to be able to be able to make the change happen. And I think that's really, really smart, specifically to train uh, women and young girls. I think it's really awesome. What I meant about for the government is basically just don't stop. I'm trying to tell big organizations to stop giving money to the government. You still can work with them without giving yeah. them the money because they have proven that that money will not go to the people. So why would you give them the money? It's not going to go to the people. Focus to give this money to organizations that will make a real change, a real difference in the life of these people. Otherwise, poverty will continue. The cycle will never break. It will just keep on going and going without stopping. So, yeah, it's possible to continue to. We work with the government, but we don't give them a penny. No, I think you're exactly right. It's finding ways to work together, but not throwing good money after something yeah. that's not working. It It's makes dumb. perfect sense. Well, thank you so much, Georgie and Carmen. This has been an awesome conversation. We could clearly keep talking for hours and hours and I really, really benefit from it. I, I hope everyone listening has too. You can connect with them and find resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes, which will be down below or head over to su.org backslash podcasts for all the information, all the links, all the good stuff. And we will see you next time. 